Would you stand to your feet with me? If you have your Bible, would you take it out? If you need a Bible, raise your hands. The ushers will get them to you. Let's hold it up nice and high, and let's make this declaration of our faith together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all God has destined me to be. Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to First Chronicles chapter number 29, and we're going to read a chunk of scripture this morning. And so say, stay with me, beginning in verse number one. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things to be made of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, otic stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. By the way, the temple that they built for God was ostentatious. I mean, it probably would have offended some people in modern day Christianity because when you walked into this place, it was blinged out in every single way. He said, moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And then David prays, verse number 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you as were our fathers. Our days on the earth are a shadow and without hope. O Lord God of Israel, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I am I have willingly offered all these things, and now with joy I have seen your people who are also present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever. 
in the intent and thoughts of the hearts of your people and fix their heart toward you and give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statues to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. So the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord as king. Today, I want to minister to you from this great prayer of the Bible. This is one of those great prayers. I want to minister to you from the subject, a heart for God's house, a heart for God's house. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you that in it is power and might, and we just submit ourselves to everything that it says in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. As we come to David's prayer, there are some things that I want to show you about the prayer that I think will benefit us in every way. First of all, David understood that the church is the house of God. Now let me preface it by saying the church in scripture refers to two things. It refers to the called out ones or the people, but it also refers as the dwelling place or the assembly of the people of God. So the church in the scripture is also referred to as the house of God. And it's referred to many times as this Psalm 26 verse number eight, David says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. First Timothy chapter three, verse number 15. He says, but if I delayed, the apostle Paul is speaking, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Now that would make no sense if that was just talking about the people. He's talking about how do you behave yourself when you come to the place that we call the house of God or the church. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all those who bought and sold and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And by the way, the reason why he did this is because the way that they sold stuff was they had scales and they would put something on one side of the scale and however it measured against the gold on the other side of the scale, that's how much you paid. And what they did was they put false weights so that people would have to pay more. And so Jesus knew what they were doing and so he went in there and he turned them upside down and he said to them, notice he's in the temple, he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. And so I want you to know over and over again in scripture, I could give you probably 30 scriptures where the place or the assembly of where the people of God dwell is called the church. And and it's so important that we realize this because from these scriptures, we see several things about the house of God. Number one, it is the place where his glory dwells, which means it's the place where people come and encounter the life-changing presence of God. It happened for me many, many years ago. I was a teenager and like a lot of teenagers I was fighting the battle between God and girls and it was kind of getting in the way of my relationship with God by the way don't look at me in that tone of voice like you don't have a battle right? Everybody has battles. And I was fighting this relationship between God and girls. Which one was going to be the main thing in my life? But I was still going to church. By the way, despite what you are fighting with, still come to church. You know, a lot of times people think, well, I'm going through this or I have this hang up or this habit. And so, you know, I can't come to the house of God because I'm not worthy. 
keep coming to church. The Bible says that the house of God is not just for the healthy, but it's also for the sick, right? God expects us to come to his house, and he expects to have to deal with us and grow us. And so I was going to church, but I was like, I can't, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not really living for God. And, and I felt this call to ministry, but at the same time, I'm like, how could God use somebody like me? God doesn't use people who have all these hang-ups and these struggles. And sure enough, I go to church, and there was a guest evangelist there, and she calls me out. Don't you hate when pastors do that? Literally points at me, tells me to come up to the front in front of everybody. And she points at me, and she says, you're doubting whether you're called in the ministry, but God told me to tell you that you will preach the gospel all over the world. My life was touched by the glory of God, by the presence of God. My life changed ever since that. To know that God would still want to use somebody like me with faults and failures and battles and all of those kind of things. People find that out when they come to the house of God. It's the place where his glory dwells. Ask my wife. That's where we met in church. I remember the story. We had a little church of about 50 people at the time. It was in Freehold, New Jersey. And her and our family walked into the church and you could see everybody in the church because it was so small. And I was up in the front and she walked in the back and immediately she spotted me. She said, this is the place where the glory of God dwells. I'm just playing with y'all. Anyway, our life was changed in God's house. God's house is a house where people are supposed to experience his life-changing presence and glory. And that's what the scripture tells us. But notice also in Timothy, the scripture that we read, it's the pillar of truth. Truth is under siege in today's culture, isn't it? It's being redefined, reinvented, and reimagined. It's being twisted, turned inside out and upside down. It's become relative and repudiated. And as such, there is a vacuum of morality and an escalation of depravity plaguing the hearts and minds of this precious generation of God's creation. To where do they turn to be set free? To where do they turn to find out what the standard of of truth is, what truth actually is. Nowadays, people need to go to a place that has an objective standard of truth. That place is supposed to be the house of God. We are supposed to be the standard bearers. We are supposed to set God's truth so that the culture has a place to go when it's being turned inside out and upside down. The church is God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. The church is heaven appointed. It is God anointed. It is the carrier of God's truth. It is the standard bearer of righteousness in an unrighteous world. It is hell's dreaded adversity and the devil's worst nightmare. Jesus loves the church. He said it was his church. And sometimes we don't realize how important the church is. And we think it's just kind of like, uh, you know, secondary. Matter of fact, in the Message Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 20, I'm going to read how it puts it. Here's how it describes the church. It says, God raised him up from the dead. Jesus and set him on the throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe everything from galaxies to governments no name and no power exempt from his rule and not just for the time being but forever he is in charge of it all has the final word on everything and at the center of all this Christ rules the church. 
The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world, and the world, the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. In other words, the world is not, it's supposed to revolve, our world especially, revolve around the church. It's not secondary, it's not peripheral, it's not stuff that we fit in. It is the source, it is the center of everything that Christ does and wants to do. Christ loves the church so much that he said it was his church. He said, my house, my house. In another place in scripture, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And when I read this scripture, the Lord brought me back to my playing days when I was involved in a lot of sports and things like that. And you know, you're on team sports and you get all amped up before the game, especially if it was a home game. And you say, not in our house, not in our house. They're not going to win in our house. This is our house. We are defending our house. I kind of heard Jesus say that when he said, my house, the gates of hell will not prevail against my house. You know what the church is supposed to be? It's supposed to be the place where you come in with whatever it is that's plaguing you. And Jesus says, not my house. He tells the devil, not in my house, sickness, not my house, lack, not my house, depression, not my house, hopelessness. It's supposed to be the place where we receive everything that God has for us. The church is the house of God. Number two, as we look at David's prayer, you can tell David had a heart for God's house, but because he realized how much he needed it. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 3, one of the scriptures we read, he said, moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of God. He had a heart for God's house. And David talks about his affection for the house of God in so many places in the Psalms. Psalm 84, verse number one. Listen to what he says. He says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Listen to the passion he has to want to be in God's house. And what's interesting is the background of why he writes this psalm. He writes this psalm when Absalom is banished from his kingdom. Absalom was one of David's sons. And he was banished from David's kingdom because he kills uh, his half-sister's rapist, Amnon, who is also David's son. So one of David's stepsons rapes one of David's, or one of David's half-sons rapes one of David's half-daughters, uh, and Absalom rises up and it kills him. Now you say, well, why is that even in the Bible? Like, why do we need to know that? Because the Bible is real. This is how you know the Bible is authentic. You ever listen to somebody try to prove something to you? You know what they do? They leave out all the bad parts. Don't they do that? They try, they don't talk about any of the struggles or anything. They just tell you all the things that are going to convince you. You know what the Bible does? The Bible exposes its warts. The Bible is like, yeah, these are regular people who had screwy lives and screwy problems. And that's what's so amazing about God, that God uses these kinds of people. And so Absalom is banished. And, and, and when Absalom is banished, he's away for two years and he decides he wants to come back and he wants to commit himself to serving the Lord. And as evidence of this, he sends word to his father. He says, I want to make this grand sacrifice at Hebron. And so his father is excited because what 
parent doesn't want to know that their child wants to come back and serve God? What parent doesn't want to be reconciled with their child? And so David sends 200 of his best men to go and greet Absalom and take him along to Hebron for this sacrifice. The only problem is Absalom's not sincere. He's got a plot. And his plot is he wants to overthrow David. For two years, he's been stewing in his anger. Some of y'all need to get rid of it. Some of y'all need to get over it. Some of y'all need to realize, and you're going to see how the story unfolds in just a second, that bitterness and unforgiveness, it will eat you up. It will take you in a complete opposite direction that God has for you. And so his plan is to is to draw the people to himself. And so as he is traveling to, to Hebron with 200 of his men, he makes all of these innuendos along the way about how his father is old and outdated and antiquated and he hasn't kept up with kingdom times and how he could do such a better job. And he compliments the people who show agreement with him. And so as people are listening to him and nodding, he's going, man, I like you. I mean, matter of fact, if I was king, I would put you in this position. And he promises these positions and he's complimenting them. And so all throughout the kingdom, he sets up these surrogates throughout the 12 tribes of Israel. And all these surrogates are people who he has put these innuendo and made these promises to. And he conspires with them to spread word to everybody else about how good a of a king he would be. He has no plan on following through with putting them in the positions. He's just trying to gain their uh, loyalty by promising things him things that they're never. he's never going to do. Sounds like modern day politicians to me, doesn't it? Anyway, sorry about that. And then he says to the surrogates, at the appointed time, which is the time of this great big grand offering, he says, I want you to declare throughout all the land that Absalom reigns. And so every Everybody executes. And when everybody starts hearing Absalom reigns, they think that David has died or that David has turned over the kingdom to his son. And so everybody now, their heart is with Absalom and Absalom now takes over the reins and he wants to kill his father. And the Bible says that David has to quit Jerusalem is the way it puts it. And it literally means has to leave the city that he's literally rebuilt. It's literally called the city of David at this particular time. And David flees, and as David is fleeing, David's heart convicts him. He thinks that God's hand is against him. And the reason why he thinks that God's hand is against him is because of the great sin that he committed with Bathsheba. And you remember that great sin? He had Bathsheba's husband, his best friend, killed because he slept with his best friend's wife. And what's really interesting now is Solomon is is the son of Bathsheba and David. Isn't the Bible just messy? I mean, you can't just read this stuff. It's it's like crazy. And so David is now getting ready to flee. And as he's getting ready to flee, he only takes people who are loyal to him. Matter of fact, what he says to everybody is, if your heart is with Absalom, serve him. But if it's with me, come after me. By the way, can I call a timeout? Stop trying to drag people with you that don't want to be with you. Bye. If you don't want to be here, 
Take it. I'm not talking about church right now. I'm just talking about life, right? By the way, I do that in church too. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not running after people that don't want to be here. The Bible never says to chase down people who don't want to be here. It talks about a sheep that is caught in something. We chase them down. But people that don't want to be here, they have a free will. Bye. Go find a church where you can be happy in and grow in God. But if your heart is here, then be here. That's what David said. He said, I don't want to drag people with me that don't want to be with me and that's a good principle in life and so he takes people with him that want to be with him and among the people that want to be with him are the Gittites who are the Gittites well they're from the same line as Goliath and so they are his bodyguards they are his 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 the people who guard him and what's interesting to me is what David defeated eventually wound up defending him in his life. Isn't that amazing? The things that the enemy sends to steal, kill, and destroy from your life, if you will defeat those things, those things will work for you and not against you. And so now the the high priest and some of the other priests want to come with David, and they want to take the Ark of the Covenant from the temple or from the tent of meeting that has been the place where they've worshipped. And David says to Abiathar, who is the high priest, and Zadok, who is his assistant, he says, listen, no, you guys stay here and leave the ark where it belongs in the temple of God. And he says, just do me a favor. He says, just keep your eyes out and help me to put down this coup, but do it very gently because I don't want to kill my son. And so the devil thinks that he's got David backed into a corner because David cannot even fight back because it's his own child. The devil is dirty, isn't he? But how many of you know God is greater than anything that has got you cornered in life? And so David goes out into the wilderness. He goes out into a place of hiding. And that's when he writes Psalm 84. And listen to what he says. He says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. What was David saying? He said, I miss being in the house of God. I miss being where God's glory dwells. I miss being where God has put his name. I miss being where the standard of truth is held up. David was saying, I need the house of God. Church, listen, we need the assembly of God's house so that when we're overwhelmed, we can be reminded we are overcomers. So that when we are depressed, we can be reminded that our destiny is in God's hand. So that when we are hit by adversity, we can be reminded that God is almighty. When we are at a loss for answer, as we can be reminded or get a word from Almighty God. When circumstances fill us with anxiety and worry, we can come and we can find God's peace. When everything is raging on the outside, we can get peace on the inside. See, we've got to understand there is a function that is vital to our spiritual health and well-being, and it's in God's house. You cannot be, trust me, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor, You cannot be what God has designed you to be. You cannot live the life that God has for you apart from a commitment to God's house. And then David in the rest of this psalm, and I'm going to just hit a couple of points in it, and then we'll go back to 1 Chronicles. David in the rest of this psalm, he begins to, point number three, he begins to extol the blessings of those who are committed 
to the house of God. David realized that the blessings of God rest on those who are committed to the house of God. Notice what he says in verse number three. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young even at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Look at verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Now what's up with the sparrows and the swallows and the nests? It's kind of like it almost seems like, what is this doing in the psalm? Well, in the tent of meeting that was built or that was the place where the ark was prior to the tabernacle, birds would literally around the altar make nests all around the altar. And some scholars believe that the singing of the birds was actually part of the worship that went on in this particular place. But what David is basically saying is these animals find their dwelling place in your house. God, we ought to take an example from those animals. In other words, your house should be a home away from home. It used to be when I was growing up in church, you were there every time the doors were open. And and sometimes, to be honest with you, too much. Like you were there like four or five nights a week and you'd be like, oh, I gotta go to church again. I swore I would never have Sunday evening services ever again in my entire life. And then about 10 years ago, God's like, yeah, you are. It's going to be in New York City, though. And I'm like, seriously, God, really? Anyway, we were there every time the doors were opened. But nowadays, people show up for church. It's like less than 1.5 times a month now. It's sad. What was David saying? He was saying, your house should be our dwelling place. Why? Because blessed. Bless your blessing. Rest on those who dwell in your house. Notice the end of verse 4. They will still be praising Selah, the first blessing that rests on people who are committed to the house of God is no matter what's going on in their life, they're still praising. Notice David, have you ever looked at some people and like they're a little too exuberant in praise and worship? You're like, what's wrong with them? Something may be wrong with them. They may actually be going through something that we don't know nothing about. But they're in the house of God and guess what they're doing? They're still praising praise it. See, there is a blessing that comes on people who are committed to the house of God. No matter what they are going through, they learn to praise their way through. Look at David. David's son is overthrowing him. He's still praising. David's kingdom is being ripped out from under him. He's still praising. David can't even go to church, not because he doesn't want to, or because there's an internet for him to be lazy at home with. David is not going to church because he can't. He was blocked from going and David is still praising what a blessing to be able to praise through storms David says that's one of the blessings that happen to people who are committed to your house then he says look this is the sor- I call it the sorrow to springs and strength to strength blessing verse 5 blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. What is this talking about? What is a valley of Baca? Well, a valley of Baca was literally a place that was um, an impassable pool of water on your way as you made your pilgrimage to the holy place or to celebrate the feast and go to church. And so what God was saying is that first thing that happens, this valley of Baca, this impassable place, this sorrow place, is literally called the place of sorrows, it gets turned into a spring. Something happens to people who are committed to the house of God. 
There's an unusual joy about them. Have you ever noticed that? That people who are committed to God's house, when they should be sorrowful, they are full of the joy of God. But notice the second thing that this verse says. It goes even a little bit deeper. As they were coming, as they had their heart set on pilgrimage, they were traveling from all sorts of way. They would come on this impassable place, and they couldn't get to church. They couldn't get to the temple. Now, how many of you know what modern-day Christians would do? You'd be like, I tried. And they just go back home and not even think twice about it. Matter of fact, they would actually think, well, I did pretty good by actually trying. At least I got out and went. You know what these people did? They relied on those who were close by to make trenches through this valley so that when they got there, they could walk. They were walking through Remember when you were growing up and your parents would tell you, when I was your age, I walked through the snow that was this feet high to get to school on time, right? That's what they literally did to get to church. They didn't let, here's what God is saying. He's saying that people who have this sorrow into springs anointing on their life, people who go from strength to strength are people who are so committed to God's house that there is nothing that is going to stop them from getting to God's house. It doesn't matter if it snows outside. It doesn't matter if it's raining outside. I am getting to God's house. There's a blessing that rests upon them. He says they go from strength to strength. Strength to strength. Stronger and stronger. And then David ends this little psalm where he talks about people who are committed to God's house, have God's blessing rest on them by talking about the revelation you get of God. Do you know why most people don't overcome It's not because they're not good people. It's not because they don't love the Lord. It's because they have no knowledge of God. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. Their knowledge of God, their knowledge of the scripture is very, very limited. And so when life presses on them, they usually find themselves in a vacuum of what do I do? They don't know a promise to go to. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to press in. They don't know where to go to find the scriptures and the help that they need. But notice what David goes on. He says, and this is all in the context of people who are committed to the house of God. He says, oh Lord God of hosts. What does that mean? This just Describes the God of angel armies. When you come to church, you realize that God's armies are bigger than whatever the enemy can throw your way. That no matter what the enemy puts in your path, that God is stronger. Then he says this, he says, Oh God, Lord of God of hosts, hear my prayer, O God of Jacob. Now, this was uh traditional to remember Jacob, but when they remember Jacob, you know what they were rem- remembering? You're the God of people who mess up. You're the God of people who do things that they shouldn't do, but you still use them anyway. Remember Jacob's story. He was the one who connived, stole. He stole his brother's birthright. And then when he came back to God, God said, okay, I'm going to make you into Israel. When you come to church, you realize that no matter what you've done, you no matter how many times you've made a mistake, that God can still do something with your life, that God can still forgive you, that God can still change you, that God still wants to help you, that God still wants to use you. You find that out when you come to church. He says, oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. And, and he says, oh, God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. You know what happens when you come to church? You realize that God hears and answers prayer, not because of you and I, but because he's looking into the face of his anointed. Who is the face of his anointed? It's Jesus. 
Jesus is our intercessor. He's our advocate. He's our go-between. He's the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father who is ever living to make intercession for us. And so when you're committed to God's house, what happens is you are reminded of all of these things and your faith gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And listen to the last thing he says, and I'm just going to kind of skip down a little bit. Verse 11, he says, no good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. He says, God, you know what I realize? When I am committed to the house of God, when I am in the presence of the place that your glory dwells, where I am in the presence of truth and the standard bearer of righteousness, when I'm in the presence of the place that you call your house and where you touch the lives of people, I realize that you are so good, you don't withhold any good thing from us, God. You want your children blessed. You know what life tells you? Life tells you God doesn't love you. Life tells you, you know what, you're just getting what you, what you deserve in life. Life tells you there is no God. Life tells you that the Bible is outdated. You come to the house of God, and what do you find out in the house of God? God loves us so much that there's no good thing that he'll withhold from us. God loves us so much that he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. You find out things. There is a blessing. And this, listen to how David kind of sum, summarizes his whole feeling about the house of God. He says, for a day in your courts, verse 10, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. What is he saying? He's saying, I'd rather be in church than anywhere else. I'd rather be in church than at the movies. I'd rather be in church than at a sports event. I'd rather be in church than at the theater. I'd rather be in church than out to dinner. I'd rather be in church than on vacation. I'd rather be in God's house. And I know, listen, some of you are looking at me going, well, I don't feel that way, Pastor. Yeah, but that's the point. But that's the point. The point is that our relationships with God need to get to a place where God is, we are so in love with Jesus that we love everything that Jesus loves with a passion that far and away surpasses any other love that we have in our life. When Jesus spoke to the church in Revelations, he said, you lost your first love. We've got to return to that. We find that in God's house And number four, and lastly today, a heart for God's house in David's prayer. Let's go back to his prayer. Point number four, David's heart for God's house was expressed by his generosity toward God's house. Let me say it again. David's heart for God's house was expressed by his generosity toward God's house. Look at it again with me. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse three. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen, who then is willing to consecrate themselves to the house of God? Why was David so generous with God's house? Because he loved God's house so deeply. Listen to a couple of things about generosity. David's generosity for God's house was expressed by his generosity to God's house. David's generosity for God's house was expressed by his generosity to God's house. Four times in this prayer, David mentions 
his heart. He mentions his affection. And do you know what the truth is? The truth of the matter is generosity toward God is, 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 reveals our heart for God. It's as simple as that. Imagine if I'm married to my wife and I go out and I buy myself, you know, just even a latte. I don't even call her and say, hey, would you like one? Or I come home to my house and I, and I, and I said, this is my stash of food right here. You don't touch my stuff. You know, you go buy your own stuff. Or matter of fact, whether I come home with my paycheck and I say to my wife, you know what, this is my paycheck. You ain't getting none of it. You know, back in the day we used to call it she money. The money she don't know I got, she ain't getting none of We don't, we don't call. But when you're married, everything, everything, everything that is yours is theirs. But imagine if I was stingy. Imagine if I was a miser. Imagine if I went out to the restaurant and I said, you know what, y'all order from the stuff $10 and under, but I get anything on the menu I want. Fact of the matter is, this is how we treat God. Can we be real about it? We have no problem finding money for vacations. God bless you for your vacations. I'm going on a beautiful one to Italy, thanks to y'all, in, in July. God bless you for that, right? We find money for vacations. We find money for reservations, uh, or for renovations. We find money for this. We find money for that. But somehow, some way, it's like, God, well, you know, I don't want to share the big stuff with you, God. Our heart for God is demonstrated in our generosity to God. Jesus said it like this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Secondly, I want to show you about generosity. Generosity should not be a have to, it should be a want to. Can I, can I just say this? And I, I want, I'll qualify it after I say it. Nobody has to give anything to God ever. You don't. Truth of the matter is, I know people will try to, you know, twist your arm and make you feel bad. You really don't, but it shouldn't be a have to. It should be a want to. Notice what David says. He says, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. Now, some people have taken the verses in the Bible about willing generosity And they said that exempts us from standards of generosity. Namely, when it comes to giving our tithe. Well, the Bible doesn't teach rules. It it teaches willing giving. Let me give you this example. Let's say you want your kid to clean their room. And they go, no, I just don't feel like doing that. I'm not willing today. Does that mean you exempt them from the standard? Or does that mean you hold them to the standard, but you would much rather them do what you ask with a joyful heart. Whenever the Bible talks about willingness when it comes to giving, it is not an exemption from a standard that God has set. Rather, it is what God is saying that our heart should be in following through on the standards that he has set. Matter of fact, the scripture tells us in Isaiah 119, if you're willing and obedient, not one without the other, you shall eat the good of the land. What is God saying? He's saying, I do have standards when it comes to generosity, but at the same time, what I want more than anything is I want you to have a willing heart in all this. I want you to realize everything that I've done for you. I want you to love me so passionately. Imagine, let's go back to the marriage example, right? My wife constantly says to me, you know, you never tell me you love me, and I I just wish that you will, and you know, I don't understand why you want and I in that moment go okay I love you I was obedient does that impact her does she feel empty does she does she feel hollow 
Is she much, much more pleased when she wakes up in the morning? She hadn't put her makeup on yet. She's still got sleep in her eyes. She's not looking her best. And I look at her and I say, honey, you look beautiful today. And I just want you to know I love you. Which one has a greater impact on her? I need to be willing and obedient. Not just obedient, not just willing. When it comes to our relationship with God, this is what God is after. God is after that we don't see what he wants in our lives as something that we are forced to do. But he wants us to be so passionately in love with him that we have a joy in doing everything that God has asked us to do and invites us to do. That's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously reaps generously. Each of you should give what he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants people to want to. Last thing I want to share with you. Generosity toward God's house recognizes that it all comes from God's hand. The only way that we can ever get to a place in our, in our lives with God where we can realize that generosity is where God's called us to live, is if we realize it all comes from his hand. Look at David's prayer, verse 13. We're going to close with this. He says, now therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. But who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Years ago, there was a movie, Shenandoah. Anybody remember the movie Shenandoah? You may not. It's an older movie. The leading character was Jimmy Stewart, and he opens uh, with a prayer of thanksgiving for a meal. Calls all the family in. Calls all the kids. Silences everybody. Here's the prayer he prays. He says, Lord, we plowed the field. We planted the field. We harvested the crops. We cooked it. We put it on the table. It wouldn't be here if it weren't for our hard work, but we thank you for it anyway. Amen. That's not a good prayer. Some of you are going, oh, is that a good prayer? No, it's not a good prayer. It's it's a bad prayer. But it, it, it captures what most of us believe. Most of us believe that, that the reason why we have everything that we have is because we get up and we, we grind. We work hard. We get up early, we stay up late, we sweat, we, we put pressure on ourselves and anxiety in ourselves, we work overtime, we work second jobs, we do all this kind of stuff and we feel like, yeah, the reason why we have everything we have is because we worked hard and don't make, any, don't make a, a, a mistake about it, we need to work hard. The Bible says if you don't work, you won't eat. But here's the thing we don't realize. Who gave us the ability to get up? Who gave us the legs that we walk on, the, 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 the hands that we use, the mind that we use? Who gave us the talents that we have that gives us the ability to go out and do what we do to make the money that we're making? Who did that for us? Who gave us the life that we are breathing that day? Who gave us the air that day? Who woke, who protected us from getting into a car crash that day? Who got us home safely that day? Who was it? Who was it? Who was it? Who opened doors for us? Who brought in work? Who caused somebody to pick up the phone and call us? Who was it? It was God. It was God. It was God. And here's the thing that you, what David is saying, you gotta understand who's on the throne right now. 
David is on the throne. David shouldn't have been on that throne. And David knew he shouldn't have been on that throne. Because David knew he was the eighth of Jesse's eight boys. He was overlooked and uninvited into the ceremony to choose the next king. And if it wasn't for God speaking to the heart of the prophet Samuel and saying, no, 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 no. The one I want is not here. The one I want is not here. Not here. And Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And, and if he never asked the question that God put on his heart, David would have been left out in the field. But he asked the question. And Jesse said, he reluctantly said, well, I do have another one. But he's out tending sheep. He's number eight. He's not worth. He wasn't even invited. And David knew that the only reason why he was invited into the ceremony to anoint the next king is because God put him on the heart of Samuel. And then he knew, he knew, he knew. Samuel's horn wouldn't flow with oil until David was. He knew God held the oil up. David knew he shouldn't be on the throne. David knew that when he went out to fight Goliath, guess what should have happened to David? David should have died because David was overmatched. David was in a fight. He couldn't win. But God showed up. And with some sticks and some stones, God gave Goliath into David's hands. David knew he shouldn't be on the throne because even after he defeated Goliath, he was hunted by the king Saul and he was having to hide in caves and spend nights worrying about where his next meal was going to come from. He knew he should have been dead. The whole kingdom was against him, but God preserved him, but God protected him. David knew, David knew, David knew. David was in that throne room. He's looking at everything around him. He said, how did I ever get to the place where I could give you so much, so willingly? And in this moment, remember what David is especially thinking. God, I shouldn't even be here because even if I think that my talents and my abilities got me to king, even if I think it was because I played the harp real good, that that's why I'm here, God. The fact of the matter is, while I was in this position, I screwed up real bad. God, when I was in this position, I went out and looked on the terrace one day when I should have been out fighting with the other kings. And I went out and looked on the terrace and the devil, devil obliged me because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. And I saw a woman bathing and I called her to my house and I knew who she was. I knew she was married to one of my inner core, one of my mighty men. But I called her to my house anyway, God. And oops, she got pregnant. And to cover the pregnancy up, Lord, I had my best friend put on the front line and killed. God, I did that. There's no way I should be on this throne right now. But God, you forgave me. And God, you showed me mercy. And God, you cared about my life. And God, because you did, who am I? God, this wealth that I have, this money that I have, this gold that I have, this silver that I have, it all came from you. Every last bit of it. And so today, God, I offer you not reluctantly, but I give you back only what you've given to me. That's where the line of generosity is crossed. That's where you go from a reluctant, obligated giver to a generous giver who takes delight
in sowing to God's work through God's house. Do you know the whole gospel is based on giving? The whole gospel is based on loving, willing, giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not his leftovers, not what he didn't care about, not what didn't mean anything to him. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the heart of the gospel. Would you stand to your feet? God, you are so good. You are so good. And Father, in this holy moment right now, we thank you for your generous, loving, from another world, greatest gift that we are about to celebrate this Christmas season when you became one of us. Father, we thank you for giving us your best. Matter of fact, before we go any further, if you're here today, you have never given your life to Jesus Christ. You never realized that God never considered it robbery to give you what he loved most, his son Jesus, to die for you because he cared about you that much. The scripture says it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. God wants each and every one of us to be forgiven of our sins so that we can spend eternity with him. And the cost of that was what Jesus did on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood. And in order for us to receive that, we have to open our hearts and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and I need you as my Savior. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and you don't know if you're right with him, but today you want to be made right with him, right where you are with no one looking around, just hold your hand up and I'll pray for you. I won't call you or embarrass you or anything like that, but I do want to pray for you. Anybody here like that, Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be made right with him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. For the benefit of those on the other side of the camera, if you're listening and you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to lead you in this short prayer. Can we all pray with maybe that one soul that's on the other side of that camera that wants to give their life to Jesus? Father, we come to you today. If you're at home, I want you to pray this prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. We ask that you forgive us. Forgive me, Lord. Of all of my sin, make me right with you as I make Jesus the Lord of my life. In his name I pray, amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to just type in the chat, say Jesus, and somebody will reach out to you and help you in your journey with the Lord. To the rest of you, I just want to encourage you, let's be prepared next week to give God our very best, and let's see what God will do to reach more lives to our church. God bless all of you. Have a great day.